Are you, are you saying you're gonna say it? <laughs> I'm gonna, gonna, gonna say, say it. it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm gonna say it. Okay, ready? Three, two, one. Is film like milk? Yes. It's got culture in it. And it's mm, damn it. Leche. <laughs> Whole milk, skim milk, medium milk. I have nipples, Greg. Could you milk Could me? Could you milk me? Hi, welcome back to the Aged Like Milk podcast, the podcast where we talk about movies that have gone bad over time uh, in the mind fridge of your mind. I am one of your hosts, Paris Herbert Taylor, and with me is Mr. David Rogers. Hello. Oh, hey, how's it going? <laughs> oh, hey there. Didn't didn't see you there. Hey, what are you doing over there? Oh, just talking about movies, thinking about stuff that has aged, gone bad. Okay. Today, David, what is the film that we are doing? We are covering Kill Bill Volume 1. 2003 and it was written and directed by quentin tarantino but also a shout out to uma thurman who is you know assisted on the bride character that's right it was a collaboration as they call it in the business and i think it's my turn to do the synopsis is that correct it is okay well I'm going to cheat and kind of go from the IMDb profile because it's just so succinct and so perfect. After awakening from a four-year coma, a former assassin wreaks vengeance on the team of assassins who betrayed her. So that's what we're dealing with. And David, you chose this movie. I did. We take it in turns to choose movies, by the way. Um, And sometimes we come to decisions together based on like what we're feeling but you chose kill bill i see you're wearing a yellow sweater is that in homage to miss uma thurman's notable jumpsuit yes which was also a shout out and you know a nod to bruce lee's one of his films that we can discuss i know but yeah um yeah i think it was it's pretty cool outfit that she was rocking very iconic i was looking and i was reading about this film and you know the katana and the yellow jumpsuit in some ways are very iconic um in hollywood film history like you should be able to kind of know that that's something you know like people don't see it and they're like what's that it's not some obscure movie piece it's uh it's definitely something that's memorable so i did notice you were wearing a yellow sweater jumps jumper as we would say um and I, i'm calling it out it's an homage to an yes. homage it's my uh my hooded sweatshirt that says be you on it you know be just, you don't be anybody else exactly so it's just the two of us today which is fun yeah just getting down and dirty into the films do you want to kick us off with the first thing oh hold on one second let me just turn off my notifications please <laughs> Oh, please. I'll take that again. My computer is not participating today. Okay. So, David, did you want to kick us off with the first thing that we noticed about this film? I did. Well, it's not something I definitely noticed right away, but it's something that I looked over and read about that I thought was very interesting. And it's the Uma Thurman and Quentin 
Tarantino's history. Mm. I don't know. Did you see anything about it? I certainly did. Yeah. So there's, you know, there's some positives and some negatives. Um, I'll start with some of the positives first. Um, Love that about you. Love that you always lead with positivity. You're like, you know, uh, we're about to get into some shit, but let's talk about some good things. Go for it. I mean, as the hooded sweatshirt says, (laughs) be you. I'm all about that. Life's a garden. Dig it. So, um, Uma Thurman was actually thinking about quitting acting before Pulp Fiction and Quentin Tarantino thought it was pretty sad and a shame that, you know, she was thinking that way and she wa- he wanted to make movie making fun for her again. Right. So that was one of his goals while making Pulp Fiction. And while they were shooting, she said she still wanted to stop um, potentially acting, but that she would still make some of his movies. And yeah, exactly. And then after they wrapped, they were, um, in Santa Monica at a bar. And this is a video I watched, uh, like of an interview of Quentin Tarantino and they're in a Santa Monica pub, basically drinking. And they actually came up with this idea together. He was pitching her, you know, like uh, a female assassin movie, like a revenge film, um, like exploitation. And she, she came up with the idea of having the bride um, coming up with the bride and the wedding dress. Right. At that, iconic like, opening yeah the pretty scene. phenomenal scene that that uh you know she's laying on her back and then you kind of see bill uh, and they have that little back and forth but she also came up with the um the name of the character too basically and then quentin went home wrote 30 pages basically um put it away they kind of went and did their own things he was making he was writing a war film at the time that was you know pretty tedious on his end it was taking some time um she saw him somewhere was like hey you know are we still gonna do this kill bill thing like what's going on and he went home pulled it out of his files he was like man this is actually pretty good worked on that for like a year and a half two years and and then they made kill bill instead and he's gonna come back to his war film pretty much two volumes later make a four-hour movie out of it Hmm. so i thought i thought that was pretty interesting i read that uma got pregnant after pulp fiction um before kill bill and that Tarantino was thinking, you know, do I recast? What do I do? But that he had said it was always, it had to be Uma. He related it to another filmmaker and another actor that he really, um, that he really liked and said that this guy wouldn't have done it without that actor because she was just the one that had to be in that film. And he, he was kind of the same. He said that in, in another interview, he basically said she was a muse for him for mm-hmm. this movie. He said in this interview, if uh, Uma's dad didn't meet her mom, there would be no kill bill. Uh, yeah. Basically, wow. That's deep. They, that's yeah. deep. So like this wouldn't be a, a movie without Uma Thurman. I mean, she crushes it in yeah, this film, which does. I want to talk about, but what were some other positive things about their relationship? Or was that the main Uh, I mean, he said um, he likes the team aspect of it with his actors. Um, He said he has it with Sam Jackson and with Uma Thurman. You know, she's special and he wanted to show her off in the best way. And he wrote, um, you know, a lot of this to Uma's physicality. So, yeah, I just said basically, you know, he was she was definitely the inspiration for this for this whole thing. And what about the negatives, David? Negatives. Um, I don't know if you saw this, but she was actually hurt in a, a car scene. I did. And I'm see not. That. I'm it's, not sure. It's volume two, I believe. Yeah, but they shot this whole thing at once. 
Right. Yeah. But we, but so, like, as in like, you know, we, we are just discussing volume one. So like yeah. looking, looking at the movie as a standalone, we don't know, like we haven't seen her character go into the car, but I yeah. also read the same thing because I think, you know, we talked about doing volume two later down the line when we're talking about this movie. I do think it's interesting to look at this film as a standalone because I personally think the story of it is strong enough to stand alone. But historically speaking, a lot of film discussion is about the two volumes. I mean, it's the two, it's Kill Bill one and Kill Bill two. Yeah. This is just speaking to their relationship. Right. Right. Sorry. So um, as they're shooting this and, and I believe he wanted, he, he considers it one movie in his, Mm. in his, all all the movies he's made, he considers volume one and volume two. He doesn't justice league. If he'd been allowed to do a justice league Schneider. Yeah. Um, and obviously Harvey Weinstein, who's a total piece of shit, didn't want to like <laughs> made it had to, he wanted it into two, two separate films. Got it. It, it was like a four hour runtime right. if they would have kept them together. Right. right so, right. um, if he, like when he was asked, when, um, Quentin was asked, you know, like, oh, you're however many movies. And he's like, no, it's actually one less. I consider volume one and volume two, just one film. Huh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. But to to that car wreck, and this is actually yes. um there's a couple of things that were kind of uh kind of fucked up. So basically he talked her into getting in this car, which is pretty mm-hmm. raggedy. The stunt crew wasn't there that day because uh-huh. there was no stunts, uh no stunts scheduled. He, what I read was he didn't consider this a stunt, he considered it originally as just driving. Just driving, yeah. So he told her basically it's a straight straight shot, straight road. I need you to get going 40 miles an hour so your hair blows correctly. Um and you I know, just rolled my eyes so hard. <laughs> I just rolled him so hard. Sorry, go on. With what? Just the way that he was, he needed his her hair to bro, blow in the correct way. Like I just, my eyes just rolled so hard. <laughs> yeah. So he, he, he talked her into it. She said, you know, eventually said she would do it. Um, and she ended up crashing the car. The seat wasn't um, in. bolted down correctly. Mm-hmm. She crashed to a tree. There's video of it online. Um, and it was this whole thing, you know, she was with uh, Ethan Hawke at the time. Mm. And yeah. So like she talked to Quentin about it. Ethan talked to Quentin about it and was like, Hey man, she's a great, great actor. Like why are you having her do stunts? Why are you even risking her like this? You know, she got a concussion. She had to wear a neck brace when Mm -hmm. she got back Mm -hmm. and she basically confronted him and said like, Hey, you tried to kill me basically. And he Mm -hmm. said, no, I didn't. Um, He'd recently, or at, some point in the future tried he apologized for it um he released the video to her um in case she needed it for closure and she was also looking to see if there was like a sue yeah she was going to possibly sue um Mm -hmm. you know the studio and everything but i read um interesting thing that she wrote about well i actually have i actually have the quote of her from the new yorker yeah so she said quentin came into my trailer and didn't like to hear the word no like any director uh, he was furious because I'd cost them a lot of money, but I was scared. He said, I promise you the car is fine. It's a straight piece of road. Hit 40 miles per hour or your hair won't blow the right way and I'll make you do it again. But that was a death box that I was in. The seat wasn't screwed down properly. It was a sand road and it was not a straight road. So when she crashed, this is what she said about it. The steering wheel was at my belly and my legs were jammed under me. I felt this searing pain and I thought, oh my God, I'm never going to walk again. When I came back from the hospital in a neck brace with my knees damaged and a large, massive egg on my head and a concussion, I wanted to see the car and I was very upset. Quentin and I had an enormous fight and I accused him of trying to kill me. And then uh, he responded. I actually have his response. He spoke to Deadline and he said, 
I'm guilty for putting her in that car, but not in the way people are saying I'm guilty. He said that nobody that day, like you said, considered a stunt. It was just driving. None of us looked at it as a stunt. Maybe we should have, but we didn't. And I'm sure it was brought up to me that I rolled my eyes and was irritated. And he, yeah, basically said that like early, I saw in another interview that it was one of his biggest regrets. Um, so yeah. yeah. And, and she eventually apologized for him, but I actually, I have a post, um, from the Hollywood reporter from mm. Uma Thurman's Instagram. And she said, she posted this clip to memorialize its full exposure, um, and the circumstances of the event were negligent to the point of criminality. Ooh. Um, she said, I do not believe though with malicious intent, Quentin Tarantino was deeply regretful and remains remorseful about the story event and gave me the footage years later so I could expose it in let it see the light of day, regardless of it um, most likely being an event for which justice will never be possible. He also had, mm -hmm. he also did so with full knowledge in case causing person that it could cause him personal harm. And he's mm -hmm. proud of, she is proud of him for doing the right thing mm -hmm. and for his courage. Uh, she also said it was a cover up, basically. Oh, really? And after, and yeah, and that fact is unforgivable. Um, she holds Lawrence Bender, E. Bennett Walsh, and notorious Harvey Weinstein solely responsible. They lied, destroyed evidence, and continue to lie about the permanent cause they caused and then chose to suppress. The cover up did have malicious intent. And shame on all of them, she said, for eternity. And CAA never sent anyone to Mexico. I hope they look after oh. their clients more respectfully uh, if they, in fact, want to do the job for which they take money with any decency. So we've had some stunt people on the podcast when we talked about um, Birds of Prey. And mm -hmm. we had Jeremy, who I worked with on a film uh, at the end of 2019, start of 2020. He's a stunt coordinator and a fight coordinator and stunt guy. Like, he does it all. He's a badass watching the way that they treated our actors like they were so safe they were you know in every discussion um there's this his boss jv who was there on set like it was no joke anything relating to anything that's what's crazy to me that they didn't consider driving a car a stunt because on the film that i worked on it was all drivers, you know, like you just can't risk that shit. Like when you're talking about a vehicle, unless we're talking something that's on a soundstage, that's literally not going anywhere, you know, it's like, can't, can't go anywhere. So, you know, set up with like lights all around it. I, I think it's crazy that he thought that she could just drive 40 miles an hour. It's just, and the fact that she was uncomfortable and that they had an argument about it, like he knew. He yeah, you didn't wrong. have to put her in that situation. No. Yeah, your actor the, isn't your actor isn't being like a diva when they're actually like fearful. I was gonna I'm gonna watch the the second volume pretty soon again. I've seen it before, but um, just to see like that scene, uh, right? If it made it, however they did it. But what do you think you're gonna get out of them if they're so fearful to be right. in that situation? Yeah, and the stunt. It's so easy to have the stunt coordinator, uh, Zoe Bell which we've talked right. about. She's yeah, well, amazing. She was in Baytown Outlaws, right? Yeah. She's been in a ton of stuff and she was actually uh, her Uma Thurman stunt double on this right. film. So, I mean, I'm sure she would have done it and they would have had the seat correct. They, mm -hmm. you know, make sure the steering wheel, everything was okay um, for her to, to do that successfully, either Zoe or even if Uma was well, the, comfortable at that point, if the stunt right. coordinator the, was on it's To have the stunt people there, because at the end of the day as well, like they are, trained in safety they know how yeah. to not hurt your body that is like literally their whole job and like I said I've only worked on one feature film but just the level of care that these people put into every single thing they they practice it on mats they block it out they like you know they talk the directors and the actors and every single person they talk it through 
how to do this safely. And so it's just so negligent. And you're, you're absolutely right. Like with what Uma said, like the producers super fucked up on that, in that situation and for covering it up, for covering it up, but also just for like, not, you know, there would have been so many people. It's like when something racist gets posted or something that like inappropriate gets posted to like a brand's account. You're like, how many people did this go through before that like turned an eye to it? You know, like there were so many people on set that day that could have said, Hey, this seems like a bad idea to have Uma driving the car, but no one did. And no one did. And hopefully she's okay. But I did read, I mean, this article article was like a few years old, but where she talked about it in the New York times, 2018. So three years ago, but she said she still to this day has injuries from that. And it seems like, I mean, they went on, they didn't speak for a long time. Right. But they, did they go on to work together again? I forget what the filmography is. I don't think they've worked together since, but I saw another interview um, that Quentin went on a talk show and said that they had spoken and potentially he was thinking about, you know, volume three. Right. Um, so I, I don't know, but to, to your point too, with the stunt coordinators, even not just like fight scenes and everything, they have excellent, you know, stunt drivers, if that's mm-hmm. what it takes. And they can say, all right, we need to put some hard sand here mm-hmm, or put mm-hmm. some concrete down at this turn put sand over it right so like you she won't there's no chance of her spinning out basically right, right? They'll, they'll walk that course they do they say, do like, it no, all if you if you ever get the chance to see a stunt team work together on a film or i guess a tv show they do not fuck around like you see something on tv or in a movie and you're like oh that's cool that's hours of labor of people doing it the right way yeah. show and then also working with the director and showing the director like how you can shoot around this in a safe way because obviously you know what we see is in front of the camera you've also got to factor in there's all these people in that space a camera actually itself you know um it's just interesting, yeah, that they really dropped the ball on that and with dire consequences to the point where, you know, someone is so fearful and then so afraid. And and also how would Uma have felt after that? Like she was afraid to begin with and then the worst thing happened. I, I mean, not the worst thing, you know, touch wood. She wasn't like dismembered, but yeah. something terrible happened. How does that make you feel as an actor? How do you continue showing up to work essentially, you know? So I don't know if you caught this as well, but that scene where that chain's around her neck, they actually mm-hmm. choked her. Yeah, I did so, see that. And then he also, I also saw that um, she was spat on in that yep. scene in the hospital. By, so, by, by a Tarantino, right? Yeah, by Tarantino. So I'm just kind of, I'm kind of curious because um, I saw that he also did it uh, with one of the actors in, in Glorious Bastards, mm-hmm. um, but she agreed to to be choked a little bit to have that effect uh, for the scene. And I think Uma did as well, but I don't know. I didn't see anything about the spitting part. If Uma, you know, was okay with that part, but at at the same time, but at the same time, uh, you're you're an actor with a director who's meant to be like, you know, think about Tarantino at the time. He's this like breakout actor, you know, and you're an actor, David. Um, yeah, but they're, they're friends. They were friends, right? They did Pulp Fiction. It's still a power dynamic, right? You're on set. You don't want to be that person. Like, you think in those situations you'd have boundaries. Like if you and I were working together, David and I have done a couple of little short films together. If I said I was going to spit on you, I feel like even though we're friends, you might be like, eh, I, I would know. never, I would never let anybody spit on me. Um, right. Like, <laughs> I don't even, care if I, even if I was like, oh my God, David, this is going to be the kill bill. You'd be like, yeah. eh, I feel like we could cheat it with eh, some water. You're not going you know? to fucking spit on me. Yeah. Um, unless it was a comedy. 
and it was like <laughs> like you hey, you took us you took a sip like a spit take like a spit take that's that's funny to me and then i'd let mm. i'd let you spit all over me if that's the thing um duly noted must yeah. comedy where i spit it's, on david there you go let's get it but well, yes yeah, sorry like, would on. i let someone choke would i let so like ch- like would i let myself be choked by like a rope or something maybe but that's that's really? still my de- yeah that's still my decision though because like if I can like do a shoulder tap and be like all right we're done here you know what I mean like if someone if like another stunt again I don't in a headlock right or something and then I was getting close and I was you know having seen these stunts up close though again I don't think you as the lead actor would be put in that position it would be your stunt double stunt people who have this is gonna sound weird but like safe ways that they can choke you because there are yeah. ways that you cheat it you know like. Yeah. You see when someone goes down hard on a floor, like as a stunt double, yes, that person is hitting the floor, but they've been trained to fall correctly. If you're choking someone, you're choking them, you know. Yeah, I'm talking about being choked though, because you can't really right. cheat it. You can't cheat well, that with a stunt double. You can't, it's the actor that has to do it because this but is a, a but close, it would be But it would be a, a stunt double's shot. hands, you know what I mean? Like they would know how to do it safely. Yeah, or, exactly. That's yeah. what I'm saying. But I, I'd be fine. I'd be fine with that. Because then I'd right. say like, all right, if I pinch your leg, stop. Something like that, you know what oh, I mean? Oh yeah, they have many yeah. ways to, to stop it. Um, exactly. But I don't think we can move on from this topic without raising, you know, you kind of alluded to it. It's the Harvey Weinstein element. It's the Harvey Weinstein gigantic sexual predator at elephant in the room of this movie as soon as you start watching this film his name comes up like pretty much immediately in the credits Mm -hmm. right Harvey and Bob Weinstein honestly like just being completely honest I mean you and I texted about it today like I struggled with this movie and you know I feel like we should put a trigger warning because if you don't know what this film's about like yeah it's great to say it's about a female assassin and she comes back for revenge but there are a lot of things in this movie that are disturbing for a woman to watch I think especially in light of knowing what we know about Harvey Weinstein in the, in the wake of the Me Too movement um, and just also understanding that Uma Thurman was sexually assaulted by Harvey Weinstein. She came forward and she said that. And knowing that Quentin Tarantino had such a strong relationship with Weinstein, I think for me that really affects the way that I look at this film because I pulled something from an article that where Tarantino spoke about how that he didn't fully understand what was happening until he um, found out that his then girlfriend, Mira Sovina, had also experienced the same thing at the, the hands of Harvey Weinstein. So he finally was like, I need to like say something. And he said he would only make the film with Miramax if Weinstein apologized to Uma Thurman, which to me is not enough obviously i think what happened to harvey was his reckoning you know so you're saying which movie so you're saying this mo- she, this mo- she was assaulted and came out before kill bill yes. was made that's what i read i mean i could be wrong but that's what i understood and he said he wouldn't do the film unless Ter- unless weinstein apologized to uma thurman which to me i'm like and did he i'm probably yeah i'm just curious because it's but that, you don't like, you don't you don't apologize most of the stuff came out like what a few years ago that i think it was like 2018 was like the start of the me too movement yeah yeah but this this is but you know like this is that's the thing like that people don't always like understand i mean i hope they do but like predators in hollywood predators everywhere it's not like uh they do something and then they get caught immediately this is a systemic problem and that's what I'm getting at. I'm just, I've never heard that it was 
before this movie was made. So you know I, what I'm saying? Yeah. So I have a, this is the quote from the New York Times in, uh, in 2018, I guess. He said, I knew, this is Tarantino. He said, I knew enough to do more than I did. I wish I had taken responsibility for what I heard. So this is the, this is the thing. They hear whispers. Maybe Uma said, yeah, he did something creepy to me. And then his girlfriend also said, his girlfriend at the time said he did something creepy to me. And his response is, okay, well, he's got to apologize to Uma before we make this movie, you know? Yeah, but I'm just saying, you know that for sure, the timeline. It was in the, it was in the article in the New York Times. Yeah. Okay. So I'm I'm just curious about about the timeline cuz why? Cuz so Uma what like she said he did it it was public and then all he had to do was apologize and then Uma was okay I don't think that film. it was public. It wasn't public until Harvey Weinstein had his reckoning in 2018. Okay. So but with that this is what I'm saying. So I just with how Uma spoke out about the car wreck, right? And she was definitely not okay with that and it was kind of a fucked up situation that she was assaulted and then still did the movie just because he apologized. That's kind of what I'm getting at. That's, I'm just curious about the timeline. So if it happened after like Kill Bill or during, you know what I mean? It's just interesting to me how like powerful like she is that she would only like still do it with just an apology from him. So here's the article. It's from February 2018. It's The Guardian. This is where I'm pulling the quote from. And it said, this is in The Guardian from 2018. It said, Tarantino also claimed that it wasn't until Thurman told him about her own alleged assault at the hands of, the, of Weinstein, which paralleled an experience of Tarantino's then-girlfriend, Mira Sovino, that he realized there was a pattern to Weinstein's luring and pushing attacks. He claims he made doing Kill Bill with, Mar with Miramax conditional on Weinstein apologizing to Thurman. And then he said, goes on to say in the article, The Guardian from the 2018, <clears throat> I wasn't giving Harvey the benefit of the doubt, Tarantino said. I knew he was lying, that everything Uma was saying was the truth. When he tried to wriggle out of it and how things actually happened, I never brought, bought his story. I said, I don't believe you. I believe her. And if you want to do Kill Bill, you need to make this right. And then he said that the crash affected his relationship. So that's coming out, you know, in 2018, like after the allegations of Harvey Weinstein, like the whole movement about him. But to your point, it's kind of fucked up that like he said to Miramax, like, I'll do this movie if Weinstein apologizes to assaulting her. Yeah. And it's crazy just, that she, I mean, it's also both of them that both of them would do that. Like, I wonder if he owned this, could he have, did he have a deal with Miramax that he had to do it oh. with him? Like, why couldn't they take this project somewhere to, else, uh, somewhere else that didn't have that piece of shit working? <laughs> I, you mean, know what I mean, I think it kind of comes back to, I don't know, like we, obviously we can't speak for Tarantino and we can't speak for Uma Thurman, but I think there was a lot of like, pushing it under the rug and a lot of like, well, he said he's sorry. And like, but yeah, I mean, nowadays, like if something like this came out, you wouldn't say like, well, I'm going to do the movie if they, so long as they apologize, it would be like, yeah. they're out. Yeah. They're out. Like look at the house of cards, right? They mm -hmm. fully like reshot everything without Kevin Spacey. Like they kind of changed that whole yeah. storyline and just, he was just gone. It, exactly. And it's kind of fucked up that, um, you know, just a simple apology. Well, I don't, I don't know if it's simple, right? I wasn't there. You said, yeah, we don't know 
Quentin or Uma's experience or conversation yeah. that they had um, and how they were feeling at the time. But uh, with all the damage that uh, Weinstein's done, it is just, you know, shocking. You know, it, be- it begs a larger question too, where it's like, I wonder if, you know, I mean, Kill Bill came out, you said 2003, right? Yeah. And so they must have shot it 2002. So this is 15 years before the allegations fully came to light, but this was a known thing. So like, I do kind of rest the blame on Tarantino for knowing this piece of shit was doing stuff like this and, and still saying he was going to make the movie. Like you said, maybe Miramax owned the right, something like that. But like, it's so damning to come to still make the movie with him. Right. Yeah. But, and that's what I'm getting at. I probably, that probably never come to light how that, all went about between Quentin and why he decided to to stay pursue it. Yeah. Pursue it. And then why Uma took the apology and continued. You know yeah. what I mean? She probably didn't want to miss out on this this movie that she had created yeah, with Tarantino. I'm wondering if Quentin was like, well, you know, you you don't have to see him or anything like that. We're separating him from any part of this basically and it's you know it's our movie um that idea because you know like i said they came up with the bride character together right so she probably felt ownership of the character which which she does she's listed as um you know credited as coming up with the bride character so i wonder if that was kind of part of it too but uh, yeah i'm wondering why they didn't jump ship well we don't know and we weren't there and it's like you know and i know especially like people you know, they, they, they don't want to miss out on opportunities and they think like, oh, and then you start to like doubt yourself. Like maybe it wasn't a big deal. Like, you know, I'm glad we are talking about this movie because I think it is a piece of cinema that's very historic, but I think it's hard to talk about it without that. You know, like if Harvey Weinstein had been like a tiny piece of this production, maybe mm-hmm. it wouldn't have felt so real. But I think when we're talking about this movie, which is very violent and there's a lot of like violence inflicted upon female bodies, which I hope we're going to chat about and, you know, the female empowerment, like, yes, there's this element of like, she's a kick-ass assassin, but also like the violence that is afflicted to her body. Like, it's just something, I think it's interesting to view it in that light. Don't you think? Kind of, but I'd feel like for this, he's made a lot of movies that are similar, you know, kind of gory. Kind of. Tarantino, Tarantino. Tarantino. Right. Yeah. So that's kind of just some of the stuff that he does, right? What is it? Pam Greer and Jackie Brown, another great female character. And he, he does write and have a lot of powerful women in, in a lot of his movies. And I just think this, this, is, this movie is about assassins. So like no character in this movie is a good person. No one's going right? to an Uma ice cream Thurman store. Isn't, exactly. Uma Thurman's character is not a good person. She, she was an assassin. Right. I think we are meant to, I think we are meant to align ourselves as the audience with Uma's character. Don't you think? Oh, definitely. It's, it's from her perspective. It's her point yeah. of view. She, she did still get fucked over. In the, uh, in the first five minutes though, she does kill someone in front of their daughter, which is fucked up. Yeah. And this is kind of why I, I dig this movie because this is the world that they created, right? It's like honor amongst thieves kind of thing. Like, yeah, you fucked me over. So I got to get you. And she goes off and she has her list and she's got to start checking those all off. Mm. and you know she gets she kind of gets some of her power back through i mean she had the power to begin with but t- to to your point she is we're, we're supposed to be rooting for her but she herself is, <laughs> can't be a good person and she's because she's an assassin yeah she, she and she's she, very violent in the way that she kills yeah. and i know that's 
that's Tarantino. I mean, yeah. that's one thing I wanted to say as well is that like, I do have a queasiness around Tarantino and I sort of was alluding to it before, like the violence done to female bodies. And to your point, this is a film about a female assassin going after a list of other female assassins. But I think I find it difficult because it's just so gratuitous, the violence to the bodies. Yeah. And this is based off other movies though. It's, well, it's preceded. a spaghetti western, right? Like it's a, uh, not just a spaghetti western. It's a spaghetti a western, sim- like a samurai, samurai mm-hmm. yeah, kung fu. So there's a lot of different movies uh, that he, you know, that he kind of pulled from. He was to, paying homage. I know, I do know not, that. Yeah, not even just homage, but I'm saying like a lot of the ideas from other films um, that preceded this one. So I just want to say it's not just Quentin that does all these gory. Like, look at some of those horror movies, mm-hmm. like Saw, and some. <laughs> well, of those... you know, I won't. <laughs> exactly, but I'm saying like th- it's not. Just... I know about it. Yeah. Yeah, you know about it. So there is this lane for. Um, all these kind of grotesque. What do they and, call like, it? What Go- they actually show. horror, or like, is there a name for it? Uh, like slaughterhouse or something like that. I don't know. But then mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you too. Like, so this is obviously over the top. I actually laughed mm-hmm. at some of these scenes. Did you? Right? When it's like when her arm they, gets cut off, I did laugh yeah, a little so bit. So Sophie's arm gets cut off, yeah. and it's just spraying everywhere. It's yeah, just and like it's way like too that's much. way too much blood. Yeah, you'd be they, so dead. She's like crawling around. I'm like no. Yeah, they actually like filled condoms with blood to, oh, really? to make that shoot out like that. But I mean, so take a film like, and this is fictional, but take a film like Saving Private Ryan. Mm-hmm. There's also some real world gore mm-hmm. that he was portraying mm-hmm. in that they showed like a guy's guts out screaming yeah. for his mom. Oh, and that's, anything that, that stuff. Yeah, that you know you're going to see guts at some point. Yeah, and I feel like that, I've seen Kill Bill a few times before we decided to to do this, right? And I've seen Saving Private Ryan multiple times as well, but it's been years. And those scenes, I think, stick with me more mm-hmm. than, than 1917. Some of the gore. Had some yeah. real fucked up. Yeah, exactly. But then Red Line. Real, that's real life stuff, right? Right. And so, then this is meant to be stylized and meant to be yeah. a little bit ridiculous. I mean, you've got like the synth beats behind some of the the gory stuff. Perhaps it's not the fight scenes, which I do think were epic and, you know, kind of gory to the point of like craziness. I think there's parts where you kind of already mentioned it, like the choking, which I found where her eyes go kind of red, Mm -hmm. which was like a bit disturbing um, where you see her getting, you know, punched in the face and stuff like that. Like, I think we just don't see a lot of violence towards female bodies all the time, unless it's for a specific reason. In this case, I do think it was part of the story because she is a female assassin. But I still, as a woman, find it jarring. And I think also maybe it's because Uma is so little and and skinny and thin, you know? It's like, I mean, she's muscly, but she she takes a beating like Jesus Christ. Yeah, but okay. So you're you're saying to to the female body, does it upset you? Um, like when stylized movies like this, when like a guy, uh, the same thing, a guy gets like his ass whooped or something like that. No. And, and you raise a good point and I know why you're asking because it's like, why do I personally have that reaction to women? And I think it kind of comes down to, we see a lot of, you know, okay, well, two things. We see a lot of violence towards male bodies in film, but also we are taught, and this isn't necessarily true, but we are taught that men fight, you know, women don't fight as much. Mm. And that's changing because we have incredible female UFC fighters, you know, like we have female boxers that are just crushing it. But typically, and I'm talking specifically in cinema, 
we don't see a lot of violence towards women unless it's at the hands of men. So I will give that to this film that it's not, I mean, you do see men coming for women, but women get theirs. Yeah. Throughout this film though, all the bosses are all women, right? And they had to do what they had to do to get there. But to your point, like, so you're talking, we're talking about still being controlled by a man. Bill Uma's not. And neither any, is anymore. N- anymore, but neither is uh, Lucy Liu's character. Or but Sophie's. they were. They were trained. I thought they were, they were his proteges. Uh, they're his proteges, but uh, I don't think Lucy Liu was trained by. I thought she was part Gale. of the, the. She was vipers. eventually, but she, they show that anime scene. Oh, before yeah, with um, the parents. You're right. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. And then she she learns how to kill, and she was like the youngest assassin ever. So, but then um, you know, sorry to keep jumping around in the film, but then at the end when she leaves Sophie alive, and Sophie's in the hospital, she's bill so we don't really ever see bill's face too often you see his um, hand yeah and yeah. he's got his hand kind of menacingly on her shoulder and he's like kind of touching her neck a little bit it's very threatening in my opinion so yeah. you f- you feel like this man has a hold on these women and he's either created them or he's nurtured these violent tendencies don't you yeah think? they all they all worked for the the viper crew mm-hmm. but uh he says you know he's like uh he says something about your betrayal right so mm-hmm. sophie and lucy lou went off and did their own thing mm-hmm. so and he considers time, that a betrayal right yeah he considered like they got out of the the gang basically and they don't touch too much about vivica fox uh copperhead but you know she settled down too she had, had a she kid. married and had a kid so she was kind of out of the game as well so and i was going to kind of talk to you about that what do you think is harder or a stronger decision to get out of a, a violent lifestyle and start a start a happy home or in Lucy Liu and Sophie's characters to to dip out from the Viper crew and then pretty much run the Yakuza and like all like head up crime in Tokyo. I mean, I think it's harder to live a domestic life, right? Because yeah. if you're already an assassin, that's the life you know, that's the life yeah. you lead. But I've never killed anyone. I can't imagine that's easy. So No, but I I'm mean sure they, they grew both up they grew up in violence uh, and that's like you say, and that's all they knew. And I, I just think uh, for Vivica Fox's and Uma Thurman's character to, to say, I'm done with this. I want a different life. I think that's a hard, hard decision or a tougher yeah. decision. I wanted to ask you um, about Uma's character. Do you think that she is okay? So she's, she talks about revenge a little bit in the film, right? Yeah. I mean, this whole, her whole drive throughout this film is revenge. She has a, so a list. I wanted to pose a counter opinion to you though, and see what your feelings were because there's the revenge thing, which she talks about. And, you know, it's kind of like a classic revenge movie. She's coming after the people that wronged her. But I also was reading an article about the idea that she's actually fighting for survival. I just wanted to throw that at you. What do you think? Survival. Because like, okay, so she escaped from the hospital. So this is like the triggering part. Like the first couple yeah. scenes of this is so hard to watch. She's basically been comatose. This guy's standing over her. This nurse guy throws this other guy like a, a Vaseline. And basically it's it's insinuated that like he's been selling her comatose body for yeah. rape. Yeah. And um, so then she is awake, right? And this guy comes in and she's pretending to be asleep and she like bites off his lip. And then she kills the nurse guy and escapes in his in his pussy wagon in his truck. So yeah, I read this article that was like, you know, people typically think this is a revenge film, but she's fighting for survival. And part of her survival is killing her way out of the hospital. And then not only that, 
she's coming for the people who tried to, like basically her survival is they all have to be dead yeah but it was just the indie wire yeah was did you see indie, the article yeah yeah but that was kind of you didn't think that was kind of one-sided a little bit but i'm just yeah. throwing, throwing I, no, it. I, I, and i thought it was i thought it was a very interesting article i thought uh she made some good points her name's what, kate erbland and i i thought it was i thought it was well written but i just thought it was a little one-sided but to your point um if it's survival, well, yeah, I guess you can make the argument because she's got to get these people out of the way so she can just be alone Happy. and not have to worry about people over them coming back for her. shoulder. Yeah, but I mean, the tenacity that this woman has and <laughs> the violence inside her. And I the, mean, and the, the patience with the violence. And, exactly. And she, to sit there for a she month. She waits for a month for this to steel get her to sword. be. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And just, just saying like little toe move, you know what I mean? And let's, let's fucking do this thing. And just setting this whole thing up, having a list and say like, I'm coming for everybody. And then to tell that uh, Vivica Fox's daughter, like, Hey, if you got an issue with this, like your mom had it coming, but if you got an issue, if you still feel roar about it, she says, you come see me. You know what I mean? I'll be waiting. Yeah. Yeah. Like (laughs) bring that action. Well, essentially she's saying that the cycle of violence can never be broken because she was wronged and she went to go get hers. And then she's like basically perpetuating the next generation. And that's what I think uh, their thoughts on kill bill volume three could potentially be. They bring that to her. And mm. you know, her, that Vivica Fox's daughter grows up. That that's kind of one of the, the things that people have been talking about that they might try to take it if they were to do it. That would be interesting. One. That would be yeah, very interesting. It would. But I mean, you know, like as a kid, yeah, you, you're probably a little you can't understand that. But as you grow up, and if you like as an adult, if you knew that your parents did what Vivica Fox and the rest of them did. Would you say like, all right, well, I still got to get revenge. Uh, it's just, would kinda, I, I don't know. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm just saying like, I'm a soft person. I don't like to get in fights. <laughs> and that's good. You know, the nine, the nine violence is good, but I'm just, it's interesting to me. Like no, it's, uh, it's, Bill's it's, brother uh, even says it, but he's like, what, you know, what we did to that woman, she, she deserves. Uh, um, yeah. Right. Like they, and, and Bill even said it when um, what's her name? Uh, Daryl Hannah Ellie goes to like poison her in her sleep. Mm-hmm. She's like, nah, it's the way, like we fucked this lady over. Like this isn't the way to do it. We're not killing her in her sleep. You know? Although, you know, she kind of turned in the beginning. I felt like, yeah, she's doing the right thing. Cause she was like, ah, oh, to die in your sleep. Like that's something we never get. And it's so true. And then she's told not to kill her. And she freaked out. <laughs> she calls her a bitch and stuff like that. And she's like so mad, but you did, you did pose an interesting question to me. So assassins are they real or made up in hollywood yeah so did you have an answer for that or were you genuinely um, interested in what i think yeah well i'm generally interested in what you think but i did do some uh research on it yeah please show yeah okay so it's it's very kind of interesting because they they talk about this article that i read that they talked about um this this British like reporter pulled up four different types basically of contract killers. Mm. And yeah, there's like the novice, the delentantes. I don't know what that De- is. Delentant? De- De- is that delentant? I think that's how you say it. That's how I yeah. read it. I fucked that up. Um, journeyman, I liked it. 
and then and then masters and there's there's been other people that have done um i think it was in like australia they did like a comprehensive investigation or i think it was british too but um like 39 years of evidence of hired killers Mm. and normally the ages they said range from 15 to 63 and their average being 38 years old and it was mostly common to be males but with this they're saying like they think masters these are these are real contract killers yeah. that they're researching? Interesting. Yeah, yeah. But like people that actually killed somebody for money. Uh-huh. And they kind of go into it saying that the cost to kill somebody, like the profit you get versus the risk, like isn't really there. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And then, but it's kind of interesting. It's like, well, if there was good contract killers or assassins that wouldn't leave a trace, what they call masters, like I would say it could potentially be those w- <laughs> women that are in that profession because they say like they don't leave a trace and that's why there's really no evidence of them. They, they think like these master assassins do exist, probably not too many of them, but mm-hmm. they just don't leave any trace. And they mm-hmm. say that most of them are out, they would assume are um, have like a military background, mm-hmm. um, know how to, you know, get in somewhere, get out somewhere, not, not leave any kind of trace. But uh, it, it's definitely this article spoke to how Holly, Hollywood pretty much raises that like yeah, this, well, this... I was going to say Hollywood would leave me to believe that every other person is an, a contract assassin, you know, with the yeah. amount of movies that come out. Exactly. Where it's like, and then he was a contract killer the whole <laughs> yeah. time. Yeah. Uh, you got like you Mr. Know. and Mrs. Smith, like, you know. Baytown? Dude, Outlaws, Mr. And Mrs. Mr. and Mrs. Smith, though, like that's 100% of the adults in that house are contract killers. Like yeah, those yeah. odds are <laughs> kind of crazy. Let's get Brad and uh, Angelina and let's make them killers. But they, it was kind of funny. This article was like the only place they don't do it in Hollywood yet is space. Like there's no contract killers in space. But I feel like you uh, heard it here first. There's that. Well, there's that Amazon show that we watch. What is that called? The Expanse. The Expanse. Yeah, I guarantee. If I went back and I can't think of it off the top of my head, but I bet there's some contract killers or assassins. Matthew McConaughey is. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> Space assassins. (laughs) Space assassins. (laughs) Let's get them all. Matt Damon's in. He's down. I mean, he was a space assassin. He tried to kill in Interstellar. (laughs) Yeah, but he tried to kill Matt McConaughey's (laughs) for survival. (laughs) Survival. That's Uh, money. Um, No, that's a fascinating article, and I definitely think we should try to link that uh, if people are interested to learn more because it's a fascinating trope in Hollywood and. I hope yeah. I don't get arrested for Googling Google. assassins <laughs> he gets on and some how kinda, much do assassins yeah. make. Yeah, <laughs> Gets a knock on the door and has yes. to go. Uh, like, David, you didn't even use a private browser. David. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's a shame, you know, what we talked about with like Tarantino and stuff like that, because another thing that you wanted to talk about was like the directing. And I agree as a filmmaker, there were some shots in this that I was like, David and I just recently made a little short film in 48 hours and it was like super fun experience, but like, you don't understand the science and art of a camera angle until you are physically holding a camera. And like, I'll tell you the scene, obviously the big fight scene at the end was huge in this movie, but there's a shot, a couple shots actually, where they're underneath the glass floorboards in Mm. the fight scene that were just so effective. And there were just so many shots in this that were amazing. So obviously the directing stood out to you. What What really jumped out to you in this film? Couple things. I thought the uh, the tracking shot. He did it a few times. Um, he did it first in the first scene with uh, Vivica Fox, where the camera would come up and mm-hmm. travel over the different rooms, and you could see. Like, oh, the, I loved the, that. The walls, right? So he did I that also. That. Yeah, it was amazing. He did that also with um, with 
Uma walking around. Like she gets down, she goes down to the bathroom and that's when Sophie comes down Mm -hmm. to the bathroom. Again, the camera goes up, goes across the rooms. Then it catches her coming out. It catches Mm -hmm. the two workers talking about don't fuck with these crazy people. They'll cut Mm -hmm. our head off. Mm -hmm. And it goes up. And then, you know, you hear uh, Uma's like commanding voice uh, calling out Lucy Liu, uh, like Mm -hmm. Oren Ishii. Yeah. So I thought that shot was amazing. And then the, the lighting, like, well, the black and white, that they use, I want to talk mm-hmm. about a little bit, but also um, that blue, that it it goes dark and she's ch- like she's fighting everybody, mm-hmm. and then it turns blue, right? And then it's just that kid <laughs> that she like chops the sword off and she smacks his butt with the yeah, yeah. sword. She's like, like, "This is what you get when you fuck around with the yakuza." Yeah, yeah. Go and he's crying and runs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, they did that like on the spot, really, uh, with, with him. Yeah, because. It's, it was written for everybody in the crazy 88s to die mm-hmm. and they got to look at this kid and there's like no way uh he could uma go for or the uma. bride is gonna kill this kid no like uma wouldn't kill him because mm. he's so he was so the actor was so baby-faced so Aww. yeah so they're like just chop up like the light flicks on she sees she's about to kill him just as it flicks on sees his face and then just chops up his sword so i thought that was that was pretty interesting but the um yeah what did i say the scene i wanted to get back to oh um, with the um let me try. oh the black and white yeah the black and white which yeah. wasn't wasn't just a stylistic choice i read i mean there was yeah elements. he pulled that from another another film mm-hmm. that he liked uh it was in a it was an american version that showed gore and to be on tv they, they had, couldn't have uh, color they, yeah so it was so gory that they had to use black and white um to be on tv and that's i thought that was a very interesting choice Mm -hmm. for him to use to flip it to black and white during that awesome scene and then right back to to color and it's on her eye when it flicks back to in color listen i think like i said i feel a certain type of way about this movie because of what we know about quentin and about what we know about happy weinstein but there is no denying that quentin tarantino just knew how to make cinema you know like he invented things you know i mean i don't know if you know much about his history but he used to work in a video store when he was younger so he used to watch a lot of movies growing up and i think that has seeped into his director's brain and he can just like pull out something on a dime yeah to carry that much in your head and to be able to pull from it is pretty pretty amazing seeing some of the interviews and the stuff i read where he's like oh this movie in this at this date in the 70s and this actor and this director did this together and i mean there's a reason he's not like generally considered to be a normal human i mean yeah we didn't really talk about it but like there's a lot of feet in quentin's movies a lot (laughs) a lot of gratuitous feet like too much i think like i'm not a feet person i don't know if you're a feet foot person not but, really not really you no. know he you sort of touched on the scene where uma's like sitting in the car and she's like telling her feet to like stop being atrophied and mm-hmm. it's just a lot of close-ups of her toes and this is <laughs> no shade to uma thurman at all maybe she has gorgeous feet and i'm just not a connoisseur but i was like ah, eh, just not really into her feet that much too much you know? feet yeah not just that just like she just doesn't have to me her feet aren't super sexy like i'm not the into the greatest it. feet i got yeah. you but i don't think it might not be for any other reason just to show some feet and to do it different no for, i think if i think if you research it he's known to have a foot fetish foot fetish but i'm just big time it, foot fetish to me i wouldn't like with the, the scenes he sets up and he shoots like just just cause that are so different that's what i'm kind of getting at well okay there's like, a, well let's just keep the whole camera on her foot the whole time let me just pull out one, one shot then there's a scene where sophie's driving and you get a flash of her feet pushing on this on this on the oh, pedal okay. which i'm like 
you know, in a, maybe that's a stylistic thing, but I personally know that it's a foot fetish thing because he's widely known to be hey, Quentin I mean, the Strange Footman. Everybody's got their own kinks. No, I'm not kink shaming in any way, <laughs> shape, or form, but it's just a lot. When, especially like when you look at his work as like a as a whole set of films, yeah, um, like. I didn't really care for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It wasn't for me. Again, I thought the violence was a bit gratuitous towards women, especially in the last scene where Leo lit a woman on fire in the pool. I had to go back and look at it today because I was like, was it as violent as I remembered? And yes, it was. But in that movie, there's like a scene. We've got this like young woman, you know, her feet are on the dashboard. And I feel like everybody at this point is just like, Quentin, come on come on you know the producer's like, <laughs> like and then what we're gonna do is we're gonna have another foot and they're like quentin you've got 17 feet shots in this no you've got to cut two yeah. yeah but um no you you sort of touched on it before the animation in this film so effective um really yeah. really beautifully stylized what did you think about that scene I thought it was amazing and I forgot about it actually. Mm-hmm. Until I, I also it. forgot about it. Yeah and it was actually directed separately interesting uh, by Kazuto nakazawa and yeah the like i mean what happens in the animation is extremely fucked up essentially lucy lou's character's parents are murdered oh yeah before her very eyes but to throw that in a film like this as an origin story yeah to throw a whole origin story in anime in like the middle of a you know multi-million dollar movie with that star studded i thought was just fantastic I, i i loved how just the different things broke this up right it was also very Japanese-ly, um, Japanese styled. Like, um, yeah. I don't think, have you seen the show Attack on Titan? Uh, I believe so. Is that with yeah. like the big giants in the wall? Yeah. yeah and it's yeah. got a similar stylized, you know, like what they zoom in on the eye and it's like, oh. yeah. Um, so it's interesting, you know, this film, and that's sort of to the next point that we wanted to talk about, like the Asian representation in this, like, mm-hmm. you know, I do have to give him props. Like something that we talk about a lot on the podcast is the lack of diversity in a lot of films. And this film had a lot of diversity and really was, you know, trying to portray Japanese culture and whether that's just the animation style and also like, you know, the elements in the fight scenes and being in Japan. Yeah. I thought it was, pretty well done although i did google and lucy Liu is not half japanese she is full chinese her parents are from beijing and shanghai (laughs) respectively and that's something that kind of bothers me and i know bothers my asian friends is that like you can't just put everyone under the asian umbrella you know not saying that they should have necessarily you know hired someone that was half japanese half chinese specifically because they obviously wanted to hire lucy Liu. but i do think it gets a little bit frustrating for asian actors when it's like we're not the same you know oh for sure yeah there's uh, there's a lot of different, uh, you know, cultures in Asia, so you can't just can't just throw them all in. Um, but I, I did think, yeah, he, like you said, to your point, to the like the Japanese and the animation, and then the uh, the scene with um, what is it? Uh, who made the sword? Um, uh, Hattori Hanzo. Hattori Hanzo, yeah. And then yeah, so when he's like the master sword creator right yeah but I, I thought it was a really cool scene that you know she gets it out of him that that he's does it he's retired she lets him up in the room and she's just in awe of this wall of the you know all the artwork that he makes that yeah Hattori Hanzo swords right and these are like coveted pieces of of, of art right but they're for death and he he's struggling he doesn't want to make any more death but when she calls out Bill and says that she's the one she's that he's gunning for 
then he writes it really cool on on that uh window and he's like all right in a month i'll have it ready and he swore and they have that little ceremony right mm-hmm. so it wasn't just like all right here's a sword yeah like i swore i'd never do this again um but you know to like your cause like here you go and i i, I thought it they i thought they did that very well yeah i think it was very interesting i was I, I had forgotten a lot of this movie. I hadn't seen it since university. And actually when I was at university, I also wasn't a big fan of Tarantino, but my roommate at the time, Hannah was a huge fan of Tarantino. And anyway, yeah, I, I, I tried to, I tried to be on her level and be like a Tarantino fan, but I wasn't. Um, but I had completely forgotten about the scene where she goes to the sushi bar and the two Japanese guys are just like yelling at each other (laughs) and it's very comedic, but there was a part of me that was wondering if there was a little bit of stereotyping there, you know, cause all the Japanese guys, even the, the Kikusa bosses, everybody's like shouting and they're sort of larger than life. But I I think we got a good cross section cause we had the assassins and, and stuff like that. And everybody was equally fucked up. So definitely. I I think, you know, just my, recent memory as of right now like i think he does a good job with uh inclusion yeah and representation with his characters the one thing that i will say is that i did laugh out loud and say this out loud to myself like a crazy person in my apartment alone i said so you're telling me one white lady could beat all these yakuza assassins because there's a hundred of them at the end right (laughs) when they're all just lying there and no but i mean it was it was interesting i did go down a little bit of a rabbit hole um, n- nothing to really sort of like quote, but just the idea of white white characters mastering an Asian art. Yeah, that's kind of stuck out in my head too. Yeah, like yeah. Lucy Liu is the head of the Yakuza and like, you know, she, we kind of know, well, we know she's going to die because in the very beginning we see her name is already crossed off like of her kill list. So we, yep. we kind of know she's going to die. But, and she's also very arrogant, like, oh, you're not going to last. And you never say that in a movie because of course you're going to be the one that gets fucked up in the end. But- <laughs> I did think it was, it was a little bit like uh, the white character. Yeah, master everything. Doesn't she? Sword. Doesn't Lucy Liu uh, say that too in their fight scene? Like, yeah, like, like white lady with a sword kind of type yeah, yeah, thing. Okay. Um, and then after she, after Uma Thurman like slices the top of her head off, or actually, I think it's before she cuts her leg. And she's like, you're not just uh, like a regular old person. Like she, she shows her respect before they finally get to going and then, you know, Uma Thurman kills her. Um, but to your point, when you said like, she said she'd only have energy and she wouldn't last five minutes when Lucy Liu told Uma that I read too, that it, it lasted four minutes and 59 seconds. Yeah. 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 So I That's thought that was, so funny. <laughs> yeah. but again, I was like, okay, wait. So all the, and also uh, this is maybe just my observation, but like uh, uh, Lucy Liu's um, personal, like her character's personal guard seemed to be much harder fighters that scene was like more difficult for Uma than like the hundred Yakuza fighters that showed up. Like she made pretty quick work of those guys, you know, her friends, the first ones, the first group that she killed, it was like super easy. No, Um, I thought it was harder. Like, well, I don't know. She was cutting those people out pretty easy. Like it was super quick. And that's why Lucy Liu says, no, that's, uh, that was the second. Oh, was that? No, it's the, that's oh, yeah, the that 17 year old bodyguard. Yeah. Yeah. That was part of the first group. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess that that bodyguard was in uh, another movie called Battle Royale, where it was like mm. 50, 50, 50. Like uh, it was kids. It was yes. like little girls and, and boys. It's what they based the Hunger Games off of. Oh, really? So mm-hmm. he, he, and she was in that. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's so, also a fucked up 
scenario where you'd have kids, you know, fighting to killing each other. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but it was kind of going to another strong, young, like female who, <laughs> well, this is the article I was reading, like, he right, liked right. The movie, and he'd like that it wasn't just like boys beating up boys, you know, right. women, like young women were holding their own too. Right, right. So. Yeah, did I just did think it was funny that she had one sword. And there's all these people and it's like, surely some of you could have, yeah, some of you would have gotten killed for sure. But if you'd all swarmed her at the same time, instead of waiting, yeah. waiting in t- your turn to get <laughs> sliced up. I was thinking the same, like, just like somebody's going to, a couple people are going to die, but if you all rush at the just same Just jump time, on top of her. Yeah. Go from above. <laughs> just sacrifice yourself. But she's got um, that Hattori Hanzo sword. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, that fight sequence is so long and so gratuitous and so bloody, but I think <laughs> it's... You know, it is Tarantino in a nutshell. And yeah. I like that she unzips her yellow jacket and you're like, ooh, what's she wearing underneath it? And she's wearing another yellow outfit. Yeah. Like she takes off her like motorcycle outfit. Yeah. Um, so iconic. So iconic, that yellow jumpsuit. I think, yeah, if you wore that to a costume party, people would know exactly who you were trying Especially to be. Especially with that helmet. I thought she looked, just looked like such a badass. Yeah. 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 Which she is. Yeah. yeah. Um, you had some fun facts. I know you well, said a couple of them. Uh, I did want to say just one thing. I think this was from the article we discussed earlier. Mm. And one of the quotes I, I liked, um, it's, well, it kind of made me think. And it said, we mustn't reduce Uma Thurman to the role of victim as opposed to an award-winning actress. This is back to the, um, the kind of the abuse that you went through mm-hmm. with Quentin on set. Um, so we mustn't reduce Uma Thurman to the role of victim as opposed to an award-winning actress with a career that spans decades who played the lead role in a su- successful film franchise that she herself had a hand in creating. Mm-hmm. It would be a shame to let the innocent or sorry, incident tarnish a strong, fearless female role mm-hmm. among the others Tarantino has created before and since. If we want strong women on screen, we have to let them take the necessary risks off screen too. So I wanted to ask you about that and see what your thoughts were you know i think she was a trailblazer in many ways um i think charlize theron said something very interesting i saw her on a panel earlier in the pandemic talking about how you know she kind of decided to keep taking these like action roles and it isn't it's it's gritty i mean think about her in like um mad max you know she's the shit beaten out of her she gets cut up she gets tore up i think it's still something that we i don't want to speak for every woman i struggle with again seeing violence against women but at the same time to your point like i don't want women characters female characters to just be these pretty little you know nothing fucked up happens i want to see diversity i want to see um multi-layered characters for women and i want to see people of color in those roles and i want to see non-binary people and trans people like i think the first step you know is saying Yes, women can be assassins. Yes, women can be violent. Yeah. Um, I do struggle with it personally. I, and again, like, I'm glad you brought that up, that that quote, because I don't think Uma's achievements in these films should be defined by the abuse of Harvey Weinstein or Tarantino, you know, sort of betraying her trust by getting her into that car. Like, mm. she is a phenomenal actress. She showed up to work and she worked hard every single day and she did it with her sexual assaulty weirdo producer in the background and she still delivered. So, and that's not on her. She didn't act inappropriately. That person did. Um, That person who hopefully stays in jail. Um, So I think it's good that you brought that up because yeah, she shouldn't be defined by that. And this character is incredibly iconic in film. It's hard to uh, separate her from 
from the stories that we now know. But exactly. Yeah. But to her credit, like you said, she trailblazed, you know, and or I said that. I sound so smart sometimes. <laughs> you know, she she I don't think we could have Charlie's Theron in in Thunder Road in um Mad Max. Sorry, in Mad Max if we didn't have Uma Thurman as the bride. Yeah, she stepped up and, and crushed this movie and that's why you know i'm, I'm glad you said that because i wanted your perspective on it like yeah women can aren't that fragile right no um, we, we aren't but I, they, I do i do think we you know you and i want to be in film and tv and we're, we're creators and i think we do have a duty of care to handle things like violence against women you know in, in a sensitive way because there are fucked up people out there who are like yeah. oh this is what i saw in a movie that said, like, you know, did katanas become more popular after Kill Bill? I feel like they did. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I've definitely seen a bunch of neckbeard-like videos where people are slicing up trying fruits. To chop stuff up. Trying, yeah. to, trying to chop um, baseballs and stuff like that. So yeah. it's a fine line to walk. Um, I would never want to create something that, you know, was upsetting anyone but at the same time like that's what this whole podcast is about like things age over time and when this movie came out it was iconic it was mind-blowing you know people were going nuts for it although actually I think I read something that was a little bit um polarizing because of the gratuity in the violence but like you Mm -hmm. said there are some parts where it's so over the top like the arm gushing 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 blood where it's like you're meant to be like, this is crazy. It's like, okay, yeah. I just think, you know, thinking about it and don't want to get in like a mode where we only talk about strong women when they're doing violence to other people, right? There's a lot of strong right. women characters throughout the history of film that, you know, represent without just getting in fist fights and sword fights too. Right. So, but I'm glad that there are women in every category right and right. and that they and that this movie was made and with and Uma. by the way i can't speak again for every woman but i know if we go back to like shakespearean times like women were often played by men on the stage right like women want the opportunity to play multi-layered characters we don't mm-hmm. necessarily want to participate in I, again i'm speaking for everyone i should say for myself i don't want to participate in in art that creates just like gratuitous violence towards women where a woman doesn't get like any kind of closure or revenge or you know what I mean like there's a difference between a strong female who's also like unlikable and is an assassin and has violence and all this stuff and then someone that's just kind of a prop of violence if that makes Mm -hmm. sense it does so you know I was actually you know we we talked about a little bit I was a little bit nervous to talk about this film because I feel like it's a little triggering it's very violent but I'm actually really glad that we did talk about it because it is an iconic piece of cinema and I think it's important to have these conversations and if not on the age like milk podcast where can you have those conversations exactly if we can't have the tough tough ones along with the you know getting drunk and silly and laughing about stuff um I I think we need to yeah uh, to hit every category and we are film lovers at the, at the end of the day. And we yeah. both, you know, we both obviously saw this movie. I don't know when you saw it for the first time, but I saw it when I was starting my film education, you know, at university. And mm-hmm. you can't erase these types of movies. You have to talk about no. them and the difficult stuff that comes around it, I think. Yeah, because this is, I mean, when it comes down to it, this is also part of the hu- humanity, right? Mm-hmm. There's a darker mm-hmm. side to it. There's violence to it. We can't just have... 
um, you know, all these happy-go-lucky movies and comedies and stuff like that. There's going to be some fiction films that are super dark and fucked up, and there's going to be some non-fiction films that are super dark and fucked up <laughs> that are really based in reality. Um, and you know, you mentioned the war movies, and that's true. Like all, a lot right. of that stuff is hard to watch because it's like you know people actually went through that. Yeah, um, my grandpa wouldn't see that with us. He, really? he, dropped, he dropped me and my buddy off, and he picked us back up, and he wouldn't wouldn't come in the theater. Wow, because he he served in that war right yeah triggering i couldn't couldn't even imagine yeah yeah um who do you have to note of achievement in the film um i am going to go with and we discussed this a little bit earlier with um my guy who did the animation Mm. and that is kazudo nakazawa yeah and he i think he crushed this i think the the amount of detail that he put into this and i think it was so cool how mm. he did this pretty much separately um you know from from quentin doing his thing mm. right uh and he was able to just put this story together i, I don't know I, th- I thought it was amazing i was like in awe and I, I honestly forgot about it um how that you know that little chunk of, of movie is thrown in there and it feels like it could be its own like animation series absolutely so, yeah i think he did a great job with that and uh you know you you definitely uplifted this movie so see you and we appreciate we you. we see you and we appreciate you well yeah. i have to call out sally menke she was the editor on this film um an iconic woman i actually remember when she passed away which is so weird because it was like 12 years ago but i remember reading about it um she died in 2010 unfortunately but she worked on a lot of Tarantino movies. Um, she did Grindhouse, Death Proof, and Glorious Bastards, Kill Bill Volume 2, obviously, Kill Bill Volume 1. She, I think you can agree, like the editing in this film is just so amazing. Um, so tight. It's it's a huge part of the film. It's just it moves at such a pace. So Sally, we see you and we appreciate you. Definitely. Big time. But also, I don't think we can end this podcast without saying a massive thank you to Uma Thurman, who is the cornerstone of this film and created that character and is just such a badass and you know did everything um that she did and has gone on to have such an incredible career despite you know shitty things happening to her that she did not did not want to get into that car you know wasn't trying to invite any kind of assault to her person um and just was trying to be a a boss boss bitch actress and i think that she is and i think she definitely is i think that um yeah, her career and her work speaks for itself. So, Uma, yeah. we see you and we appreciate yeah, you. We appreciate you. Uma's the truth. She's the truth. Um, so what do you think, David? Did this movie age like milk? So, obviously, there's some negativity behind it. I, did you know about the car stuff uh, previously? I did to not. Research I this? No, Neither I did. did I. And I was like, oh, what the fuck? Um, so, I think that definitely aged uh, a little bit. Now, I will say that instant was super fucked up um that he like coerced her told her like she's gonna do it and if she like messes up i'm gonna have you do it again right um especially when she wasn't interested to do that in the she first wasn't place feeling comfortable, exactly yeah. but to like the if she signed off like i can't speak for her but if she signed off on the choking part which another actor did in inglorious back bastards that's the actor's choice right if i i think it was diane kruger that diane kruger yeah she got choked um yeah in that in that scene um Mm -hmm. yeah and glorious bastards but you know she they both i 
pretty much signed off on it. I couldn't see about the spitting part. So that's, that's definitely uh, aged if, if he spit on her. I think I would have saw more, or we both would have, if it was, you know, if it's she It's still didn't. weird that he even so, spit in the first place. Yeah, like, it's super weird. Like, why, what, what do you kind of get out of your actor by spitting on them? Right, and that's kind of where, I mean, I didn't bring this up earlier, and I know it's kind of late in the game too now, but like, so many things about Quentin Tarantino, like he defended Roman Polanski on Howard Stern's show. Do you know who Roman Polanski is? Yeah. Yeah. And basically said that it wasn't rape rape. It was statutory rape because she was only 13, but like she wanted to, he said all this fucked up shit. And like, again, Quentin clearly is not a normal, like I'm not yeah. saying, but you know what I mean? Like, it's so like, who thinks like, I'm going to spit on my lead actress for this yeah. authenticity. Like there's a million ways to get a performance out of someone to do that. And that's that whole like Ruin Polanski thing of like, Oh, we're going to do this thing to her. And like, yeah, I just think it's, I think that's fucked up. Personally, yeah. That, no, that is fucked up. Um, <laughs> statutory rape, statutory rape, rapes, rape. Right. So, um, but you know, so I think those decisions on his part, definitely aged uh i feel without the choking thing if if that's the one thing that you know you're standing on that you need that effect and that's the only way you can get it and the actor wants to do it then you know that's up to the actor mm-hmm. but uh the car the car situation i i think that definitely you know you put someone in danger but as far as just the film goes and as it's standing on its own i i don't think this movie aged like milk i think it was pretty impactful um especially i think uma crushed it i think lucy Liu crushed that character um i thought there's some great character development some really cool acting scenes uh the animation um was was really dope so a, a movie as a whole i i think it was I, I don't i don't think the movie aged cool yeah what about you i think this is a conversation for another podcast and i'm gonna i'm gonna dream on it but I don't I'm starting to think that maybe I'm not able to separate the art and the artist um I kind of texted you about it today I was like you know Mm -hmm. just briefly talking about it I just don't know if I can because I was thinking about it like as a standalone movie it's still a great piece of cinema for sure and I don't think like the story has aged you know and there is a lot of representation in that but when I take into consideration all the things that we found out about Quentin and the Harvey Weinstein stuff like and just yeah it just for me it just cast this movie in a totally different light I do think it's aged like milk and I swear I will pick we'll we'll do a movie where I'm not like "Eh, I think it's aged like milk because I think my last like five or six (laughs) assessments have been like it aged um but I just think that yeah I I think if if this movie hadn't been a Tarantino or if Harvey Weinstein hadn't been involved, maybe I would look at it differently, but through the lens of 2021, unfortunately, I think it's gone bad over time. Um, But that's not to say that I don't think every woman involved with this project, you know, crushed it. Like you said, Lucy Liu, Uma Thurman, all of the women breakout performances, like loved. Um, And even some of the stuff, you know, like the, the, the set design and all of that like it's just so great but yeah for me i I struggle with the uh the art and the artist thing and and it's hard right so i came into this movie like oh fuck yeah you know i saw the yellow suit h on hbo max you're like hey just pick a movie i was looking through it boom let's rock (laughs) didn't even think about it right kill bill yeah like strong female lead right which i I like talking more 
movies about you know strong mm -hmm. female leads and then david loves a good the, female lead hey, yes them. i do Hello. and then you know i watched this movie and then i i'm doing a bunch of research on it and i'm like whoa <laughs> things are taking a turn right <laughs> yeah things are taking so, a turn exactly but uh yeah i, I mean, mean it, it is hard for me though because it, then it's like you're saying like the art and the artist too but then it's Quentin's art, but it's also Uma's art. It's right. also, um, you know, Kazoto, uh, you know, the animators it's everybody. art. It's everybody's art that worked on it. And, and, and that's like, the thing. The film is a collaborative project. Yeah. But I think for me, maybe I'm a little too close to it. You know, one of my first industry jobs was... I had a lot of contact with Harvey Weinstein and nothing bad happened to me personally. But I think when all the stories came out, I was like, oh, you know, I just, it's tricky. It's hard. And like being a woman in the industry is difficult. And, you know, my thoughts go out to people who've weird shits happened to them and they've just kind of brushed it off. Like clearly uh, Uma did to make this movie. And so, yeah, for me, it's a tricky lens, but I think that's, what's mm -hmm. interesting about, the concept of our podcast is like, it's not just about what's inside the film. I think it's about the feeling in a, as a whole. Like, how do you feel coming away from watching this, knowing what you know? So yeah, yeah it's, very, it's very interesting. I think this was a great choice. I think it was a controversial choice. <laughs> not really, but like, you know, it wasn't like a, a silly, like, ha ha ha, this is so dumb. But I think it's important to have these discussions because film, film is forever, you know, like it's, yeah. Well, not forever. I mean, one day the earth will go into the sun and then who cares? But these things don't go away. It's why they have, um, you know, warnings on the original Dumbo and Gone with the Wind because our sensibilities change over time. So, yeah, yeah. exactly. Good choice, David. Yeah, I mean, it's like I we, we have to talk about the hard ones, too. We've got to talk about them. And, and listen, like as hard ones go, yes, this is a difficult one, especially when you dig into the research of the film. But like you said, it's not it's not like someone in Vietnam's gut spilling out. And you're like, oh, this was a real guy, by the way. And those yeah. screams were real. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh, film. It's a lot. Yeah. But, you know, this this is why we do it, because we love the good and the bad of it at some some aspect of it. Right. And, you know, I don't, again, like we are film lovers and this isn't like a let's shit on everybody in the film industry. But I think like you said earlier in the podcast, like, you know, when something's wrong and you got to say something or else you're just yeah. part of the machine that keeps perpetuating it. And that's not, not just film. That's just in general. Like mm -hmm. I tried to Life. tell my, my nephews, right. You see, you're driving, you see a stump in the road. If you get out, and it seems simple and stupid, but get out, throw it in the fucking ditch, right? Mm. Same with anything, right? If you see something as like a human being, a citizen of the world, you can speak up. You can mm -hmm. say that's wrong. You can get other people like, hey, look at this. This is fucked up. Help me out. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So there's part of you. I think there's part of everybody that said there's something going on back there that's saying this is wrong. This is a red flag. And if you have the courage enough to speak up on it, um, and if more and more people do that, and we have more allies like pointing things out and not just movie, just in everyday life. Uh, you know, the world's going to be so much better. Agreed. David Rogers for mayor of LA. <laughs> I don't want to be mayor. I'll play a mayor <laughs> in a movie or a sitcom or something, but I did not want to be mayor. I had Gavin Newsom's up for re-election, made me governor as a mayor. I'm good on governor too. I yeah. don't want any public office nah. at all. Yeah. Podcast host is, is public <laughs> enough. I'll I'll play president in uh, Tyler Perry's uh, you know <laughs> studio in Atlanta, but that's about yeah. it. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> I'll come visit. 
Um, well, David, again, thank yeah. you for navigating these difficult movies with me. Thank you for choosing this movie. And um, thank you. I honestly, I love checking myself because I grew up kind of, you know, got to be a tough guy. Older brothers, you know, we saw violence, right? Mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. violenced on each other. Um, <laughs> right? Aww, but it, like, I want to see pictures saying, of baby David you, and be like, kinda, don't violence on him. Yeah, you kind of get not. desensitized to some things at some point. And mm-hmm. I, I'm glad that me and you always have these conversations and I sit back and I take my filter off and I just let, you know, you tell me how you feel about it. And I, I try to see it from your point of view. And more than you know a lot of the times i'm it's seeding something in my head and i'm like that's a valid point right i didn't well, I think hope about it that, that way. people also listen in and, and think the same way because like yeah. again we're not experts in any way but everybody mm-hmm. i think it's interesting to see like where you come from and like what your upbringing was because like you said you kind of filter things in different ways and it's yeah. fascinating because we are also now like viewing these movies in 2021 when we've become awake to the lack of diversity or like the portrayal of women or the lack of LGBT trans characters and stuff. And it's like, the more we question, the more we talk about it, the hopefully the better the industry can be because it's like, Oh yeah. You know? Yeah. So having said all of that, David, (laughs) you should check your fridge. Make sure that milk isn't spoiled. Gross milk is gross. I love how I thought there was going to be two of us. So this was going to be a super short episode. It's all lies. <laughs> we get deep with it. Thanks for listening to the podcast, guys. Please keep liking and subscribing. Find us on all the good places where you can yeah. find the podcast. And David, I will see you on the next episode. See you on another time. <laughs> Bye.